Welcome to the Braving the Waves and Bridging the Gap podcast, stories of unsinkable resilience and resolving stigma. I'm your host, Michaela, and each week we explore stories with young people in our communities. You'll leave with a refreshing take on storytelling that will encourage you to venture deeper into and perhaps share your own story. Thank you so much for listening. That's a step in and of itself and enjoy this week's episode. This week, Michaela speaks with Jan Stewart, a highly regarded mental health governance expert and advocate. Growing up in New York and moving to Toronto after marrying a Canadian, she was untouched by major adversity throughout her youth and imagined a similar happy life for her children. In her raw and emotional book, Hold On Tight, A Parent's Journey Raising Children with Mental Illness, she candidly describes the shock that she and her husband faced when each of their two young children started exhibiting troubling behaviors. While it took time to find the right doctors, diagnoses, and treatments, Jan's roller coaster journey with the children's multiple mental health disorders taught her to insist on an integrated partnership approach with all those involved and propelled her to help parents of children with similar challenges. Her book gives readers invaluable insights and advice to become empowered and inspires them to persevere and never give up. It also importantly serves to better educate healthcare professionals on the parental perspective, as well as families, friends, educators, and employers of those affected by these challenges. While Jan takes great pride in her business career, the majority of which was spent as a senior partner with the global executive search firm Egan Zender, It is her mental health governance experience that has been the most meaningful to her. This includes currently chairing the board at Carrie's Place Autism Services, Canada's largest autism services provider, and previously serving as vice chair at the Center for Addiction and Mental Health. She also served on the Parent Advisory Council at Mass General Hospital's Department of Neuropsychopharmacology, the Advisory Council of Access Open Minds, the Advisory Board of Lights, and the board of directors of the former Ontario OCD network. In addition, she co-founded the OCD parent advisory group at SickKids Hospital. Jan is a diamond life master in bridge and enjoys genealogy, fitness, and dance. In this episode, we reflect on Jan's role as a caregiver and parent, how she takes care of herself, the mindset shifts needed in the mental health care system, and much more. Enjoy. I braved the ways after my children's doctor told me for the umpteenth time to stop worrying about my children's behavior, that they were just under a bit of stress, and that I needed to stop being an overly vigilant parent and just needed to calm down. But I knew my children were in deep distress. With Andrew's frightening two-hour daily meltdowns and nonstop bizarre compulsive rituals, with Ainsley's out-of-control behavior, that led her to internalize the fact that she was a bad child. It was time for me to step up, find the right help for them, and become their voices. And then I realized that my story bridged a gap as an ambassador of hope and resilience. My mission is to inspire and empower all parents and caregivers of neurodivergent children to persevere through the toughest times, have hope, and know they're not alone. So now I share my resilience because I want to ease the journey for others. All my advocacy activities, 
ranging from having been vice chair at CAMH to currently chairing Carrie's Place Autism Services and writing a monthly column on autism for today's parent, have led so many parents to reach out for help. I vividly remember being in their shoes, frightened, frozen, not knowing where to turn or how. And that's why I wrote Hold On Tight, A Parent's Journey Raising Children with Mental Illness, which I'm thrilled has won the Mom's Choice Award. I want readers to understand the reality and toll that these, these disorders take on families' lives. But I equally celebrate successes and gift readers with key insights to optimize their lives and the lives of their children. I am unsinkable because of my extraordinary children. They have propelled me forward and I am strong and resilient. In spite of their harrowing journeys, they both face life with determination, grit, and optimism. They are my heroes. And I resolve stigma by shouting out about mental health and neurodiversity. I advocate, write, make keynote speeches, appear on podcasts, and use storytelling to make mental health and neurodiversity come alive and to confront the elephant in the room. I want to make sure that everyone knows there's nothing to be afraid of and that differences in brain functioning are just that, differences, not necessarily deficits. Amazing. Well, we are here with Jan today and oh, I'm so excited to talk with you. I loved reading and interacting with your story and every chance we've had to work together thus far. And I'm just super excited you're here. So welcome. I'm delighted to be here, Michaela. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, I thought we would start with one of the questions that I'm hoping to ask all of our podcast guests, um, which is a bit of a unique and fun one. Um, but if you could tell your story in six words, uh, what do you think those six words would be and would love to know why as well? I think the top one would be persevere through the toughest of times, persevere through the toughest of times. That's six words. Yes. <laughs> That would be the one. And, you know, it, that's because it summarizes my story with my two kids who are now grown, but who have multiple mental health and neurodevelopmental disorders and who've been through an endless roller coaster of ups and wonderful ups and terrifying, frightening downs. And that will continue for the rest of their lives, hopefully less. Um, but that really is it. And I think as parents and as caregivers, perseverance and resilience are so important. Mm -hmm. No, absolutely. And I know you've talked about that a lot in your story. And mm -hmm. I think one of the really interesting pieces too, is kind of this journey that you've gone on with like how to, how to actually generate like language and the ability to talk about some of those things kind of along the lines of finding those six words. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious if if you have any kind of like, I guess, like moment where you figured out like, this is how I want to tell my story through words and how you got to that, got to that moment to generate those words yeah. and find that language. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's a very actually important question. Um, when you're in crisis with your kids, there's no question. You can't focus 
on the future. You don't focus on the next day or on the next hour. You're just trying to get through minute by minute. And when I talk about some of the frightening times to make it come alive, let me give you two examples. One with my son, Andrew, who has autism, Tourette syndrome, uh, very severe OCD, ADHD, and learning disabilities. One thing that happens with a number of these neurodevelopmental disorders is emotional overload that causes frightening meltdowns. These aren't tantrums. These are up to two hours of screaming, kicking, punching, lashing out at everything, punching holes in walls. And they're really scary. By the way, they're also scary for the child. And one of the early things we learned was to separate Andrew from his challenges so that his identity wasn't tied to them. He would come down from it after two hours, Michaela, and say, that's not me. What's going on? In terrible pain and distress. And this was followed within a month by his OCD just exploding out of the blue with nonstop bizarre rituals. I mean, there were many of the common ones washing hands till they bled for hours uh, over and over again, walking through doors until it felt right, could take 20, 30 minutes. We'd be late for appointments and everything, but you learn not to enable as a parent. But putting knives in his mouth because he needed to feel them. Can you imagine that as a parent? Oh, Watching your child do that bringing home glass shards and hoarding them under his bed and even getting down on the filthy floor and licking it and knowing that it made no sense. But the brain overrode reason. And Ainsley, his younger sister, while Andrew was a behavioral dream, Ainsley was a nightmare. <laughs> Out of control at school, disruptive, rude, jumping on desks, swearing at teachers she didn't think supported her, and constantly sent to the principal's office. I can smile and laugh about it now, but at the time it was totally draining. And then she wrote me a note that said, Mom, I'm sorry, I know I'm a bad child. Mm. Again, how would you feel as a parent if your child wrote you that? Yeah. So you come out of that, you know, and my husband, David, and I very quickly said, children, one, you're not your disorders or your conditions. It's not your fault. You're not bad kids. And again, as I said, we separated their identities. But most importantly, I promised them that I would not stop until I found the right help for them. And as I say in my book, Hold On Tight, I always keep my promises. And I have. And so we started on this journey, medications, therapy, how to partner with schools. And as they grew, uh, new issues related to, for Andrew, finding supportive housing, legal guardian, you know, there are all kinds of issues that, depending on your child's needs and capabilities, you have to look at. Yeah. And back in about 2015-16, I finally had the energy and emotional reserves, which I didn't have in all this chaos, to write a 10, 20-page article to myself. It was a catharsis. And two years ago, I said, you know what? It's time to pay it forward. I've always been involved in mental health and neurodiversity advocacy. You know, I was vice chair at CAMH. I currently chair Carrie's Place, the largest autism services organization in Canada. I write a monthly column for Today's Parent on Autism. It goes on and on. But I said, I really want to tell our story. And so that's what Hold On Tight did and why I did it. I so remember being in 
the shoes of parents starting on the journey frightened, frozen, really feeling isolated and not knowing, what do I do? How do I do it? Mm -hmm. And that's why I wrote it. In the book, I'm brutally honest, as you know, I tell the stories of both children, unsugarcoated, so that readers really understand what's involved in the toll. But then I gift readers with 13 key insights to help ease the journey. And that's really my raison d'etre now, to inspire and empower parents of neurodivergent children to, as I said, persevere through those tough times, have hope, and know you're not alone. Yeah. Yeah. And it's it's such a gift for anybody who's reading it. And I think, I mean, of course, I've only seen like a, a snippet with what you wrote with Unsinkable and... Um, but just, yeah. And it's a gift I can imagine to yourself as well. And one of my writing mentors like tells me that all the time, like you have to, anything you write has to be as much a gift to yourself as it is to the people who are, who are reading. Um, and that's so important, especially when you're telling your story too, as a, as a kind of facet of that writing and generating language. And I'm curious, yeah, if you have any, quotes or um, writers or anyone that you kind of relied on or who really kind of spoke to you as you were going through that moment of, yeah, saying, I'm going to tell my story. I'm going to write it now. Uh, frankly, not particularly. And that's mm -hmm. because surprisingly, I, I was really surprised to find during my research for Hold On Tight that relatively little has been written by parents raising children with serious mental health and neurodevelopmental disorders. Yeah. There are a number of parental memoirs out there, but you know, this is a little different. And I, I had psychiatrist after expert tell me this. Uh, and as I looked into it, so I didn't have that kind of an inspiration, but I had many friends who are authors and writers. Uh, of course, I've read anything and everything through the years that I could get my hands on. And the children's psychiatrists and psychologists have been inspirational to me as well, real partners. You know, I, the most overarching insight in the book is insist on an integrated partnership approach with everyone involved in your child's care. And that includes your partner or your spouse, by the way. Yeah. Um, so all those pieces contributed, uh, mm -hmm. but I spoke from the heart. I wrote from the heart. Yeah, which is which is really beautiful and so so needed because I think you're right. There has been this tendency, not necessarily a bad tendency, but a an emphasis on a lot of high functioning um, people and their stories and related to in relation to mental illness. And it's it's very very tricky to find stories that um, have been written by people who have really really gone through some really difficult things. And yeah, there are a number of books that focus on a parent raising a child with a single mm. disability or condition, but it's yeah. because of the co-occurring conditions here that complicate matters yeah. that really stand out. Yeah. And that's what I've been told. Uh, and it, I'm so proud to fill that void. Yeah. Well, we definitely need you. <laughs> it's it's so important to talk about and be honest and, like you said, not not sugarcoating it, because I think that's really valuable for a lot of people who, you know, maybe don't have the gift of writing and and are, you know, looking for language and words and what you've written. So, 
Amazing. And I think this is kind of a beautiful segue to into thinking about, you know, the connections between your story and your kids. And I know you wrote about this a little bit with Unsinkable, but that kind of time transition of how you thought as a young parent versus now versus maybe even in the future. And I'm curious if you think a younger you, maybe even as a kid or a teenager would tell your story kind of differently than you have now or maybe will in the future. Yes, I think clearly when you're, you know, this is a whole new world, I say, and it, and it really came as a shock when we discovered. And by the way, we knew from the beginning almost that something wasn't right. But our doctors kept discounting. Oh, the kids read and write. They're outgoing. They talk. Mm-hmm. Stop being overly vigilant, vigilant and worried. And this is common. This is very, very common. So, you know, obviously, hold on tight is throughout their lives and my life right to the present. When I look in the past, there's so much greater awareness now. Andrew would likely have been institutionalized with those meltdowns, those bizarre rituals combined with he has some limited cognitive capacity. Mm -hmm. And Ainsley would have been viewed as a bad child sent. Remember, teachers used to send kids to the corner, you know, all that kind of stuff. And, And she, you know, I think there's no question about that. She would have been thrown out of schools. And David and I would have been viewed as bad parents. Uh, In autism, it's quite interesting to learn that until the 1960s, it was widely accepted that refrigerator mothers and uncaring parents were a major cause of autism. And even more recently than that with ADHD, it was poor lax parenting were causing kids to act out or be lazy or whatever. So much greater awareness now. Diagnoses were far less developed there were fewer meds and therapeutic approaches. And it, I think it would have been almost impossible to envision both children working full-time, which they both do, and they have great full-time jobs and have found their niches in life, but also have to be able to lead fulfilling lives. And they do. So that's the past. When I look to the future, Again, we're on this continuum and trajectory, which is great, of much greater awareness, but there's still a lot further to go. I always say that mental health and neurodiversity are the last frontiers. A lot of the other marginalized populations have done a much better job of organized, of being organized and getting their voices heard. And it, particularly when I look at the different disorders and conditions, autism advocates are doing that now. So it will happen, but we are behind. But so what do we need to do as individuals? We really need to focus on connectivity. Mm-hmm. It's so important. We need to become better educated and emotionally support neurodivergent individuals. Of course, I didn't know that unless you've been exposed to this. We have to address the elephant in the room. Mm-hmm. We have to do it head on and not run away from it in fear. We need to listen. You know, if I had known then when I met other people, when, if I hadn't had these kids met other people, I would have learned, ask, ask the parent, what can I do to help? Because sometimes it's just a sympathetic ear listening 
-hmm. Sometimes you just need a really long, tight embrace. And sometimes you need laughter, you know, about everyday situations. It doesn't matter. You really, those words of hope and encouragement, not criticism or asking unasked for advice, you know, and and treating every individual as an equal. Mm -hmm. So in society to create that connectivity, and by the way, what does that connectivity do? It it fights isolation and loneliness, and it really helps you feel more self-worth and belonging. And so, again, listen, ask, ask the individual themselves, what can we do to help? There's so much to do. Of course, healthcare. We need more providers. We need better trained providers. Schools need more resources for early intervention. The private sector needs to show their greater responsibility to hire and retain neurodivergent employees and and embrace really inclusive workplaces. Um, So there's a whole slew of things that can be done. Now, governments also have a role to play. Uh, Everything, I mean, affordable housing is clear, but the poverty level of neurodivergent individuals is far less, far higher, sorry, than the general population. So income supports, uh, employment programs are there, but sometimes they're hard to understand and navigate. Uh, Many of the government problems are. Um, We need greater investments in childcare. And again, employers should be rewarded. So much of this, Michaela, is about partnerships, and about teamwork, treating everyone with respect and dignity, and about caring for each other as we care about our own. Mm-hmm. And that's what I would recommend. Oh, I could just mic, mic drop on that one. <laughs> <laughs> so, so true. And I'm, I'm hearing kind of like this overarching, like the importance of stories and connecting with each other and stories from everybody, including parents and people working in communities and government and like everybody has to be involved in that, in that listening that you're talking about. And that like really key difference between acceptance and tolerance, like that's, they're very different things and really bringing people into conversations. So yeah, I really, really love a lot of what you said. Yeah, the um, Canadian psychiatrist who's very well known, Peter Satmari, who's at both mm-hmm. Sick Kids and CAMH, wrote the foreword to Hold On Tight. And in it, I'm going to just quote something for you because I think it's very cogent and true. Yeah, please do. He says, another problem our mental health system needs to address is that the current system seems geared to service the provider, not the family. Jan's accounts of Andrew and Ainsley remind us that the patient is, in fact, the whole family. And that a family-centered approach should be the cornerstone of our mental health system. Absolutely. Very, very well said. And yeah, I, I know you and I have talked about this before too, but like caring for the caregiver, in which case is the family members. And, you know, and I, you wrote about, you know, taking care of yourself in that, in that process and how important that is too. And yeah, would love if you wanted to speak a little bit more about that too, like how how you take care of yourself and what you envision maybe parents or kind of just caregivers in general who are around neurodivergent children kind of in general. Right. So this taking care of yourself and self-care, as I write in the article I wrote for Unsinkable, goes way beyond 
exercise, eating healthfully, and sleep. There's no question that those are critical and we all have to try to do it. But when Andrew was going through those two hour daily, and I mean daily for nine months until we found the right medication suddenly, meltdowns, I remember taking a pint of Hagadai's ice cream and shoveling it in just to try to get through it. So you just, again, in crisis, you can't worry about that. But as you climb out of it, you have to take care of yourself. You know, the old adage that's so obvious, if you don't take care of yourself, you can't take care of your kids, is magnified a hundred times when you have challenging children or children who are in crisis or neurodivergent. So what do you want to do? The first thing I think you have to do is reach out for the support you need. For some of us, it's psychiatrists or psychologists, social workers, whoever. For others, and I've tried all those, but for me, the thing that really works the best is other parents of neurodivergent children and support groups. They're so reaffirming. It's a community of care and understanding and acceptance. And we do laugh about many situations that other families would be horrified at that our kids get engaged in, such as Ainsley's rude swearing at teachers. You know, yeah. other parents would be say, oh, well, did you punish her? And all. We just laugh. We understand. And I tell a story in the book about uh, a friend who came home to find her son who had ADHD hanging out the third floor bedroom window, waving at her quite happily. Very risky behavior that would frighten us. Yeah. But we just we find it very funny after you know the child is safe, obviously. So I, I think reaching out for that support, those support groups and other parents have really strengthened my emotional fortitude. Second, humor. It's such an important part of our coping toolkits. So uh, again, there's so many funny stories that happen with our kids. Andrew is totally literal, has no abstract thinking capabilities. And years ago, one of his teachers told him, you know, Andrew, that school rule is set in stone. Now, you know, probably Michaela, what he's going to say. He looked at her and said, so where do I find the stone? <laughs> and, and so we try to poke fun at our lives and not take them too seriously all the time. That's important. So you've taken care of your physical health, your mental health. You've reached out for support to do that. You've done the exercise, you know, as much as you can. And humor. You've got to carve out time for yourself, away from your kids, away from your partner. This is so important. You're going to get sucked into the challenges otherwise and burn out. And I've had it happen. So I learned the hard way. It's absolutely important. So sometimes, again, when things are not going well, it's just a 10-minute walk by yourself. If that's all you can handle, that's okay. Or a bubble bath. The kids can be in the house. I close the door and have a bubble bath and just take five, 10 minutes. You know, other times you want to do hobbies and activities and whatever you can do. Uh, with that. So for me, when I have time, I compete at a very high level in bridge, duplicate bridge. And bridge forces me to focus 200% on bridge, not on anything else. Mm -hmm. We talk about exercise. The treadmill is my go-to for helping me think through my issues in addition to keeping me fit. Really gives me perspective. Uh, You've got to separate yourself and be kind to your partner 
it's so easy to lash out at the person closest to you. Yeah. But my counsel is give each other the benefit of the doubt. Know in your heart that they're trying their best. It may not be what you want. You know, David drives me crazy at times. I just want to shake him and say, make a decision. <laughs> and I'm sure he, and I know he does the opposite with me and tells me to calm down. And he's right. But you also have to be kind to yourself. And this includes forgiving yourself for your mistakes. Yeah. Uh, when Andrew was going through those meltdowns and I came home one day and found Ainsley shivering and shaking in her closet, hiding in fear. And I couldn't believe it. And I kicked myself. I should have protected her better. And it took me months to forgive myself for that. And similarly, when Andrew was ready to graduate, he went to a special high school. He decided for whatever reason he wanted to attend MIT. Now, he wasn't a candidate for any college or university, in fact, any regular streaming high school. And I had given him that unrealistic dream by telling him, and i happy I told him this, you can be and do anything you want. You're not going to be limited by your challenges. And I do believe that generally, but there are shades of it. And he resented me for a while. So you have to forgive yourself. And with that, Pat yourself on the back for your strength and your resilience. You are your children's champions and hero, and you're more than enough. Yeah. Uh, so, so important and such just amazing reminders for anybody who's listening, like just to really keep at the forefront. Like if you have a mental mirror that you look into every day, <laughs> thinking of writing all of those down. And I really, really loved what you said at the end about you know making making sure you forgive yourself for your mistakes because especially in situations like that we're not perfect we're going to say the wrong thing and do the wrong thing and and make mistakes along the way and that is i mean a i think crucial to our growth um and how you learn to be better and also just you know how you become better able to be in community with other people too when you're willing to reflect on those and allow them to just be there and say, Hey, I only had 40% to give today and I gave all of it and <laughs> I did my best. And, you know, I saw really you're right, Michaela. Yeah. Yeah. Andrew and I were giving a speech together uh, to an autism community a few weeks ago. And I was explaining how, um, because of this journey, I've become more empathetic and understanding and more patient. And Andrew in interrupted and said, no, nah, I don't think you've become more patient. Mom. <laughs> <laughs> He's right, probably. It's a work in progress. It takes time. Um, mm -hmm. But no, I saw this wonderful, um, I think it was a tweet this morning when somebody said um, it was, oh, I'm going to mess it up. It was, if you only have 30% to give on a given day, and you give that 30%, then you actually gave 100 for that day and for what you had. Oh. And I think, yeah, I just thought of that after what you were saying. It's like, that's so important to remember and doesn't necessarily mean we failed or, you know, have, haven't supported our kids well enough or any of those things. It's, you know, day by day, we either make mistakes or it's, it's you know, your bandwidth is less and just so important to make sure you have the support and keep all of that in mind as you're moving forward. 
Yeah. Amazing. Well, with all of that and everything that you've shared thus far, I, I mean, A, I'm just so grateful for this conversation and everything that you've given and offered. And I'm wondering if you were to think about people in your life who you lean on, what do you think they would say if they were to give a speech or just some words about you and you choosing to share your story and be open about all of these things? How do you think that those people would celebrate you? Well, by the way, I think there are two different groups with that. One is my immediate family, because when I wrote Hold On Tight, I hang it all out. And I talked to David, Andrew, and Ainsley about it. And I said, how do you feel about this? I'm not going to publish without your agreement. So they said, write the first draft and show it to them. And I did. And, you know, David is much more private than I am. And I think he was concerned about some potential stigma. And again, about being so open. Uh, Andrew was, I think he thought, I'll be famous, which is fine. And he is in many ways. But I think he was concerned that readers might think less of him when they read about some of the things his impulsivity has driven him to do. And Ainsley, who is very supportive, uh, hasn't disclosed to her employer her issues, but has knows that it's likely they'll find out. But universally, the three of them said, you must go forward with this. We must pay it forward and help others in similar positions. I made a number of changes based on their suggestions. And again, I kept my promise. I never published one word that they didn't support. So that's the immediate family. And I'm fortunate that I have a number of other family members and certain friends, not all friends, who have been extremely supportive, as well as those in the mental health and neurodiversity communities, my publisher, and so many readers since the book came out in March, particularly since it's won the Mom's Choice Award, have reached out to me and written me fantastic notes. I think about my mother, Michaela, who was my closest friend and confidant in the entire world. And she loved both Andrew and Ainsley unconditionally and really was my biggest cheerleader. She told me many times how resilient and courageous and unstoppable I was and that I was her hero. But I always reminded her, as I remind everyone else, that it's Andrew and Ainsley who are the heroes. They have faced such heartbreaking adversity and anguish throughout their lives, and they know it's going to continue, as I said, to be an endless mm-hmm. roller coaster. Yet they face life head on. It's breathtaking to see the grit, the determination, the perseverance. There's that word again. Optimism and unwavering will to succeed that they have. They are unseen. Oh, so beautiful. I just got chills. <laughs> Amazing. I. That's such an important, beautiful message. And I think especially just with this podcast too being kind of targeted towards youth. I think it's, it's so important um, because there's a lot happening where, you know, things are being done for youth where the youth are not actually at the center of what's happening and what's being developed and created for them. And they really are the heroes in, in those settings. And I just love that you said that. And I think it's, I just want to reiterate it. It's so important. Yeah. Good. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for everything that 
you've shared today and and given us and i again like i can't say enough i'm so grateful for your openness and just you know advocacy and willingness to talk about everything and i kind of want to leave it open a little bit if there's any kind of last things that you want to share or leave listeners with um that either is really a kind of deep passion for you or anything uh, message wise that you'd like to share yeah to wrap up sure it's the community that surrounds me michaela that has branded me as an ambassador of hope and perseverance. And so the tagline that I always use and that I'd love to leave with you with is, as I said at the beginning, persevere through the most difficult of times, have hope and hold on to oh, I love it. I love it. <laughs> Amazing. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Braving the Waves and Bridging the Gap podcast. You can find much more information about this week's storyteller, resources, and related links in the show notes. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, share, leave a review, and follow us on socials. And lastly, don't ever forget that you are unsinkable. Just being here, listening, helps you swim and keep your boat afloat. Thanks, everyone.